0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I ask you to turn now to first letter of the Apostle John, chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. The dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This afternoon we will give our attention to the word of God as the church has confessed this word of God in Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And it begins with question 12, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time True God. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, over the last couple of weeks, the Heidelberg Catechism has been focusing our attention on God's original covenant with the human race. In Lord's Day 3, we saw together as church a couple of weeks ago how the Lord God made human beings to know him. And furthermore, how God created human beings in such a way that they would love Him and that they would live with Him in everlasting fellowship. And all of that is to say that God made human beings as covenantal creatures. He made them to live in covenant fellowship with Him. And what an amazing truth that is, people of God, that the Eternal One, the Almighty God, of whom this vast universe in which we live is only a shadow and an image. What an amazing thing it is that that great, eternal, almighty, glorious God wishes to love and be loved by humans. Mere humans. Puny humans. Humans who are before the face of God so exceedingly small. The great God of heaven and earth Delight to know and be known by, to love and be loved by, we who are human creatures. That's what we spoke about in Lord's Day 3 a couple of weeks ago. And then Lord's Day 4 came and Lord's Day 4 spoke about the fall into sin. And probably the best way to understand the fall into sin is that it was an act of covenant breaking. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't merely break a rule, although they certainly did break a rule. But they didn't merely break a rule. Much more significantly, when they sinned, Adam and Eve broke a relationship. Adam and Eve became guilty of unfaithfulness to their loving God and Maker, who had bound Himself to them in a bond of covenantal fidelity. Well, today in Lord's Day 5, the Catechism goes further, and it wants us to think about whether or not there is a way for that original creation covenant to be restored? Is there any way in which covenant-breaking humanity can can somehow find its way back home to its creator God, its Heavenly Father? And since the covenant was established by God to begin with, it is only God who can answer these questions. And this afternoon we have the beautiful comfort of coming to understand all over again with the Heidelberg Catechism, that the answer is positive, that there is indeed a way, a way that leads from covenant breaking back to the Lord God through covenant restoration. And so our theme is God reveals the way to covenant restoration. And we will see three things about this. First of all, that it originates in his love. And secondly, it maintains his justice. And thirdly, it requires a mediator. First then, the way to covenant restoration originates in the love of God. You know, in human life, if you are guilty of wronging someone, if you are guilty of breaking a relationship in whatever way, whether that be a friendship relationship, a relationship of being fellow members of the body or a family relationship, If you in some way violate that relationship, if you are guilty of wronging someone, then it makes sense, doesn't it, that the initiative for making things right again would come from you. You are the covenant breaker. You are the friendship breaker. And therefore, it stands to reason that you should be the one who would take the bull by the horn, so to speak, and do what needs to be done to make things right. However, in the case of our covenantal bond with God as our Heavenly Father, this does not happen. If this bond is ever to be made new, the initiative will not come from humanity. The initiative, rather, will come from God Himself. And why is that the case? Well, that is the case, brothers and sisters, because fallen mankind, sinful, covenant-breaking humanity no longer even has a desire for fellowship with God. That's perhaps the most terrible thing about sin, that sin not only breaks the relationship with God, but sin breaks even the desire for a relationship with God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were inwardly changed. Their very nature, weak and fast, became corrupt, so corrupt that they were no longer capable of knowing God, no longer capable of loving God, no longer capable of enjoying God, no longer capable even of desiring God or of wanting a connection with Him. That's how bad it is with fallen humanity. And if that's how things are, then obviously the initiative for renewing the bond will not come from anywhere in this world. The initiative for renewing this bond will come from heaven. It will come from God Himself. And this is, of course, exactly what the Bible shows to us. The Bible shows us that even when we became enemies of God, God did not give up on the human race. In fact, says the Bible that even when we became enemies of God, the Lord God continued to love the human race. And the Lord God was absolutely determined that His covenant bond with humanity would be restored. That there would one day be a new situation in which there would be human beings who would gain we're being loved by God, we're loving God, we're knowing Him, we're rejoicing in Him, we're delighting in Him, we're seeing their life's purpose to be glorifying Him. And what all this implies, of course, is that even while God revealed judgment toward the human race, and we can read all about that judgment of God in Genesis chapter 3, even while God demonstrated wrath towards Adam and Eve and all their descendants, nonetheless, in a different way, At a different level, God also continued to be loving. Even while God hated the sinner Adam, while he hated the sinner Eve, while he hated the sin which they had done, nonetheless, God continued to love them. To say it somewhat paradoxically, even while God was against Adam and Eve, on account of their rebellion against him, their covenant breaking, even though he was against them in wrath and in judgment, Nonetheless, at one and the same time and one and the same breath and one and the same moment, God was for them. Maybe that sounds strange to us. That God was loving even while He was wrathful. Maybe some of you would think it would be better to say that God was wrathful and God remained wrathful until Christ Jesus came. And that when Christ Jesus paid the penalty for our human sin, then God was placated and and His wrath was removed, and then God began to love us. And you know, I've actually heard that kind of thing from different different books I've read and even from some sermons I've heard in the course of my life That that God was wrathful. His sort of judgment was hanging over the whole human race until that moment when Christ Jesus made His atoning sacrifice, and then God's wrath was transformed into love. However, as we could see in our Scripture reading this afternoon from 1 John 4, that's not really a biblical presentation of how things are and were. In fact, in 1 John 4, we read that it was love, it was divine love for His fallen creatures that motivated God to send His Son into the world. In 1 John 4, verse 10, we read, this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so we can see from those words that God's love is, is not simply the result of Christ's work of redemption, but that God's love is rather the cause. It's the fountain of Christ's work of redemption. God loved us, and therefore God sent His Son to this world. Were there no divine love, there would be no incarnation of the Son of God. There would be no cross, there would be no resurrection, and there would be no living with God for you in the joy of eternal life. You see, the marvel of the gospel is not that we were enemies of God, whom God hated, and that God then sent his Son to die for us, after which God then began to love us. Instead, the gospel proclaimed by the apostles and and the prophets of Holy Scripture, is that God loved us even while we were his covenant-breaking enemies. And furthermore, the gospel is that God sent his Son to die for us when we were ungodly. When we were ungodly covenant-breakers, God did this incredible work of love. God sent what was most precious to him, his own well-beloved son. He did not spare him. He gave him up. He did that out of his love, which was already there. And so we have to see the marvel of all of this, that even after the fall into sin, the heart of God, you might say, kept yearning for those who had become his enemies. Even in the midst of a frightful outpouring of divine wrath, as we read about in Genesis 3, There was also the awe-inspiring desire of the Almighty God of heaven and earth for the renewed love. For the renewed love of His covenant partner, mankind, which had walked out on Him. And this is the very starting point for us to understand the plan of redemption. We must start with this foundation stone that the way to covenant restoration is rooted in God's deep, abiding, mysterious, persevering love for those sinful human creatures who had turned their back on Him, walked out on Him, and declared that they did not wish to live in covenant with Him any longer. Now, there's an interesting implication of all of this. The implication is, of course, that no fallen sinner would ever ask question 12 as we find it here in the Catechism. Question 12 says, Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? So there's really two questions there. How can we escape punishment? Number one. And number two, how can we be received again into favor? Now, there's no way that any fallen sinner of himself or herself, would ever ask such a question. Because fallen sinners are not really that concerned about God's judgment. And fallen sinners certainly are are not interested in somehow being received into God's favor again. No fallen sinners have walked out on God. Fallen sinners have rebelled against God. They have expressed their severing of the bond with God. And so the very fact that this question could ever be asked... How can we escape punishment and how can we be received again into favor is evidence of God's regenerating work. When people begin to be concerned about these things, when they start to be aware of the reality of divine judgment, when they become aware somehow at some level that there's something more to life than just the moment, that there must be something greater than just the moment, well, as soon as they become aware of those things, those Transcendental realities, you might say, well that is evidence already of God the Holy Spirit being at work in them, poking and prodding and awakening them from their stupor and their slumber. And so we've seen that the path to renewed life in God, in God's covenant involves recognizing that it originates in His love. Let's go on now to see that it it is way also which is consistent with His justice. You know, it's a fundamental premise of the whole Bible that God is not only the creator and the upholder of heaven and earth, but that God is also the judge of all the earth. So many places. For example, in the book of Psalms, as, as we sang in Psalm 9, for example, God is celebrated. He's proclaimed. He's affirmed. He's acclaimed as the judge. He's the judge not only of the Israelites, but He's the judge of the world. There's an awareness from beginning to end of the Bible that humanity stands before the face of God and that the life of humanity in its totality will be evaluated by God. It will be judged by God. The Bible never has any regret about that. The Bible never finds it something to be deplored or to hide from. The Bible also always considers God's justice something to be celebrated. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, we read, The Lord, the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. All His ways are justice. And this means that also the pathway of covenant restoration must somehow honor and reflect not only the love of God the mercy and the compassion of God, but also the justice of God. And God-justice, of course, means that God is fair. God is impartial. It means that God accurately weighs the evidence. Justice means that God carefully discerns the truth about what people are really like. And that God deals with them in accordance with their deeds. That God is just means He's not too severe, but neither is He too lenient. It means that God does not condemn the innocent, but neither does God fail to convict and punish the guilty. And of course, linked to the concept of justice is also that of the law. To be a just judge, what does that mean really? Well, it means, congregation, that you discern the truth about what people have have done, and then as a judge you Meet out the penalties which are prescribed in the law. A just judge is is one who doesn't act subjectively. He doesn't make up rulings on the fly, so to speak. But he acts in accordance with the law. He applies the sanctions of the law. That's what makes for a just judge. And in the case of God, our heavenly God and maker, he is not only the judge, but he is also the lawmaker. And what does the law of God say about transgressors? Well, it says that the penalty for disobeying God is death. The day you eat of it, you shall die. That was the pre-proclaimed sanction of the law of God. And as we find it in Ezekiel 18 as well, in verse 4, the soul that sins shall die. That's justice. God meets out the penalty of death in accordance with the sanctions of his law, which he announced to humanity already at the very beginning of our history. Death. Death in all its dimensions. Death as a severing of relationships. The relationship between God and his people. The relationship between people and their loved ones. The relationship between people and their bodies. Death in all its terrible depth. That is the punishment prescribed by the law of God for sin. And that means that if there is a way for covenant breakers to somehow be restored to their God in heaven, it cannot bypass this way of the covenant sanctions. God, who in love, wishes to begin anew with mankind, congregation, he cannot stop being the just judge. Sometimes people think salvation means That God just stops being the just judge. That God, instead of dealing with us in justice, designs to deal with us in mercy and love, just like we often do as human beings. We often do that with our children. We often do that with people who have sinned against us. We design to deal with them, not according to strict justice, but rather according to mercy and compassion. And so for us, mercy and compassion sometimes means a suspension of justice. But in the Bible the way of covenant restoration is never associated with the idea of God suspending His justice. That God would simply decide to act in love and mercy and not in justice. Because as the just judge of heaven and earth, the Lord simply cannot overlook evil. That's something very humbling for us, congregation. We've committed evil even this very day. And God is such a God, He's such a God of justice that He cannot ignore even what you might consider to be the relatively small degree of sin that you have committed today. God, as a just judge, is not able to overlook even what you might consider to be minor traces of rebellion in your life. Salvation does not mean ever that God just overlooks that covenant-breaking behavior, that covenant-breaking attitude. I want to point out what Answer 12 stipulates here. It says, God demands that his justice be satisfied, that the full sanction of his law would be imposed, and therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or by another. And I want you to focus on that word, we, for just a moment and keep it in your mind. We must make full payment. That's the justice of God. Speaking, we, you and I, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. But the fact is we must make full payment. And I'll get back to that thought in a minute. In, chapter, in question answer 13, it is specified, can we by ourselves make this payment? And the answer is that's impossible. We can't make payment for our sin because we're sinners and we're still sinning all the time and our guilt instead of getting lesser is getting greater. And so the next question says, can any mere creature pay for us? And the answer again is, this cannot be. God won't punish another creature for human transgression. That's ridiculous. Everybody knows that that's not just. That's not fair. You can't punish an animal for human transgression. It's simply not doable. If you're angry with your neighbor, you don't shoot his dog. That's not an act of justice. You can't punish a person by shooting his dog or his cow or his pig because animals cannot deal with human guilt. They cannot bear human guilt. And so there we have it. Man has sinned. Man must pay for sin. But man can't pay for sin. And so the way to covenant restoration seems blocked. It seems blocked by the terrible reality of covenant justice. It's almost as though God's justice is somehow holding back God's love. You can imagine how that might be. Let's imagine you're a judge in a courtroom and there's someone before you who has committed a crime and you, as a judge, would would rather in mercy let that prisoner go. But you cannot do so because it is your duty to apply the law. And it almost seems that that's really what's going on here with God. God is loving. God is merciful. God is compassionate compassionate, and and God would love to restore his covenant-breaking people, but God can't because God is blocked by his own covenantal justice. And so is there a way forward? And the answer is yes, there is a way forward, and that is the way of the covenant mediator. And that's our last point. The Bible calls Jesus Christ in various places our mediator. And that means, as you know, that Jesus Christ is the one who brings together God and His people. Jesus Christ fixes the broken relationship. He makes it good again. He comes as our substitute to pay what we could never pay. But now I want to ask you a question. And this is the kind of question that, for example, a Muslim would ask you. A Muslim would ask you the question, How can that be fair, you Christians, with your doctrine of atonement? your doctrine of substitutionary atonement, your doctrine of a mediator who bears the guilt of others and pays for the sin which he did not do? How can that be fair? How can it be just of God to lay upon another person the sin which you have committed and punish that person in your place? What judge in our community would ever allow that to happen? And doesn't the Bible itself say the soul that sins shall die? So how can a mediator pay for someone else? Don't we have to pay for our own sins? Would it make, would it make any sense for a judge to say to Mr. Zed, I'm going to sentence you to 15 years in a federal penitentiary because of the criminal behavior of Mr. A and Mrs. B and Ms. C and Mr. so-and-so? There's something about that logic that, that's, that's impossible for a non-Christian to really fathom. And that includes Muslims of our time. And to begin to understand, we have to remember a few facts. First of all, there is the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was not forced into this role. It was not as though he was conscripted and compelled to bear the sins of others against his will. Now, from beginning to end, the Bible paints a marvelous picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who, in his heavenly glory, did not cling to what he had, the riches of his glory, but he emptied himself, and he voluntarily made of himself a servant and humbled himself of his own free will, even to the point of suffering and dying on the cross. He was not forced to be the sacrificial lamb of God But if I may say it in a modern word, he volunteered for the job. He volunteered to his heavenly father and said, here I am. And I wish to do this work of satisfying your justice, dealing with your wrath. And secondly, we need to remember this too. That the Lord Jesus Christ is not simply one more human being among other human beings. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ is a special human being. He's a representative human being. To understand that, we need to go back to Adam. Adam wasn't just any old person. Adam wasn't just an individual man. He he wasn't just happening to be the first human being. No, Adam was designated and created to be a representative man. And this means that, as it went with Adam... So it would go with the whole human race. Just like a father can represent his family and like a mayor can represent a city and a prime minister can represent his country, so Adam represents the whole human race. Another analogy, if the if the president of the United States of America declares war with his advisors against another nation, then the end result of that is that the United States of America is at war with that other country. And even if you, as an individual citizen, had nothing to do with it and had no desire to be at war, well, the fact is you're at war because you're a citizen and your president, your representative in government has made this declaration. Well, that, that idea of representation is one that pervades the whole Bible. It's there in Genesis 1. It's there in the New Testament, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. And the idea really is that when Adam broke covenant with God, when Adam, as it were, declared his independence from the Lord, then his sin meant that we all sinned, and his disobedience meant that we were all disobedient. And the judgment of God upon him that he should die was a judgment that would be upon all of his descendants with him because he was their representative. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, we died all, we were judged all. Well, in the same way that Adam once represented us, so Christ as our mediator congregation today represents us as well. What Christ did, He did in our place. I'm not sure we always understand the implications of that. What Christ did, He did in our place. He did it as our representative. He did it in solidarity with all of us who believe in Him. He did it as the one for the many. As Paul puts it, as by the disobedience of the first man, the world died. So by the righteous life and the atoning sacrifice of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, many are made alive. Do you remember that I highlighted the word we in answer 12? The catechism says we must make full payment. Well, we did make full payment, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? We did make full payment. We have done so. We have done so because we are included in our representative, Jesus Christ. Just as we were formerly included in Adam in his sin and rebellion and, and judgment and fall, so we who believe, we are included in, And our representative, our great high priest and mediator, Jesus Christ, so much so that we can say that we were in him when he stretched out his arms on the cross, when he endured the terrible darkness, when he heard the terrible words, my, when he spoke rather the terrible words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we were in him. And it was as if he was expressing our thoughts and our reality. We were in Him. We were included in Him as the only mediator. When He was cast away from the presence of His Father, when He experienced death and all its terrible dimensions, then we were in Him. And one of the most important phrases in the whole New Testament is the phrase, in Christ. And the New Testament writers constantly play off two realities against each other. Human beings are all in one state or the other. They're either in Adam or they're in Christ. They're either dead in their sins and trespasses in Adam under the judgment of God or they're in Christ, having paid for their sins in Christ, having made atonement for their sins in Christ, and therefore no longer under condemnation. And so behold, this afternoon with the Heidelberg Catechism, your covenant mediator, your covenant mediator, who endured as your representative in solidarity with you covenant wrath so that the way might be open for you to walk right up to your heavenly Father, to have access to him, and to enjoy communion with him. And so, to conclude, in the way of salvation, we must always keep before our eyes these combined truths of the gospel In the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the most perfect love of God for you. We see also the most terrible and holy justice of God. And it is in this wonderful, unfathomable combination of love and justice that the way is open for you to experience restoration of your covenant bond with your Heavenly Father. Amen.